Chapter Ten of the Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Ten. June passed. July opened with unusually warm weather, and Fort Henry had no visits from Indians or horse thieves, nor any inconvenience except the hot sun. It was the warmest weather for many years, and seriously dwarfed the settlers' growing corn. Nearly all the springs were dry, and a drought menaced the farmers. The weather gave Helen an excuse which she was not slow to adopt. Her pale face and languid air perplexed and worried her father and her friends. She explained to them that the heat affected her disagreeably. Long days had passed since that Sunday morning when she kissed the borderman. What transports of sweet hope and fear were hers then? How shame had scorched her happiness! Yet still she gloried in the act. By that kiss had she awakened to a full consciousness of her love. With insidious stealth and ever-increasing power, this flood had increased to full tide, and bursting its bonds, surged over her with irresistible strength. During the first days after the dawning of her passion, she lived in its sweetness, hearing only melodious sounds chiming in her soul. The hours following that Sunday were like long dreams. But as all things reach fruition, so this girlish period passed. Leaving her a thoughtful woman, she began to gather up the threads of her life where love had broken them, to plan nobly, and to hope and wait. Weeks passed, however, and her lover did not come. Betty told her that Jonathan made flying trips at break of day to hold counsel with Colonel Zane, that he and Wetzel were on the trail of Shawnee with stolen horses, and both bordermen were in their dark, vengeful, terrible moods. In these later days Helen passed through many stages of feeling. After the exalting mood of hot young love came reaction. She fell into the depths of despair. Sorrow paled her face, thinned her cheeks, and lent another shadow, a mournful one. To her great eyes, the constant repression of emotion, the strain of trying to seem cheerful when she was miserable, threatened even her magnificent health. She answered the solicitude of her friends by evasion, and then by that innocent falsehood in which a sensitive soul hides its secrets. Shame was only natural, because since the borderman came not, nor sent her a word, Pride whispered that she wooed him, forgetting modesty. Pride, anger, shame, despair, however, finally fled before affection. She loved this wild borderman, and knew he loved her in return, although he might not understand it himself. His simplicity, his lack of experience with women, his hazardous life and stern duty regarding it, pleaded for him and her love. For the lack of a little understanding, she would never live unhappy, and alone while she was loved. Better give a thousand times more than she had sacrificed. He would return to the village some day, when the Indians and the thieves were run down, and would be his own calm, gentle self. Then she would win him, break down his allegiance to this fearful border life, and make him happy in her love. While Helen was going through one of the fires of life to come out sweeter and purer, if a little pensive and sad, time, which waits not for love, nor life, nor death, 
was hastening onward, and soon the golden fields of grain were stored. September came with its fruitful promise fulfilled. Helen entered once more into the quiet social life of the little settlement, taught her class on Sundays, did all her own work, and even found time to bring a ray of sunshine to more than one sick child's bed. Yet she did not forget her compact with Jonathan, and bent all her intelligence to find some clue that might aid in the capture of the horse-thief. She was still groping in the darkness. She could not, however, banish the belief that the traitor was Brant. She blamed herself for this because of having no good reason for suspicion, but the conviction was there, fixed by intuition. Because a man's eyes were steely gray, sharp like those of a cat's, and capable of the same contraction and enlargement, there was no reason to believe their owner was a criminal. But that Helen acknowledged with a smile was the only argument she had. To be sure, Brant had looked capable of anything. The night Jonathan knocked him down, she knew he had incited Case to begin the trouble at Metzer's, and had seemed worried since that time. He had not left the settlement on short journeys, as had been his custom before the affair in the barroom, and not a horse had disappeared from Fort Henry since that time. Brant had not discontinued his attentions to her. If they were less ardent, it was because she had given him absolutely to understand that she could be his friend only, and she would not have allowed even so much except for Jonathan's plan. She fancied it possible to see behind Brant's courtesy the real subtle threatening man, stripped of his kindness an assumed virtue, the iron man stood revealed, cold, calculating, cruel. Mordaunt she never saw but once, and then, shocking and pitiful, he lay dead drunk in the grass by the side of the road, his pale, weary, handsome face exposed to the pitiless rays of the sun. She ran home, weeping over this wreck of what had once been so fine a gentleman. Ah, the curse of rum! He had learned his soft speech and country bearing in the refinement of a home where a proud mother adored and gentle sisters loved him, and now, far from the kindred he had disgraced, he lay in the road like a log. How it hurt her! She almost wished she could have loved him, if love might have redeemed. She was more kind to her other admirers, more tolerant of Brant, and could forgive the Englishman, because the pangs she had suffered through love had softened her spirit. During this long period, the growing friendship of her cousin for Betty had been a source of infinite pleasure to Helen. She hoped and believed a romance would develop between the young widow and Will, and did all in her power, slyly abetted by the matchmaking colonel, to bring the two together. One afternoon, when the sky was clear with that intense blue peculiar to bright days in early autumn, Helen started out toward Betty's intending to remind that young lady she had promised to hunt for clematis and other fall flowers. About halfway to Betty's home she met Brant. He came swinging round a corner with his quick, firm step. She had not seen him for several days, and somehow he seemed different. A brightness, a flash, as of daring expectation was in his face. The poise, too, of the man had changed. "'Well, I am fortunate. I was just going to your home,' he said cheerily. "'Won't you come for a walk with me?' "'You may walk with me to Betty's,' Helen answered. "'No, not that. Come up the hillside. 
We'll get some goldenrod. I'd like to have a chat with you. I may go away. I mean, I'm thinking of making a short trip, he added hurriedly. Please come. I promise to go to Betty's. You won't come? His voice trembled with mingled disappointment and resentment. No, Helen replied in slight surprise. You have gone with other fellows. Why not with me? He was white now and evidently laboring under powerful feelings that must have had their origin in some thought or plan which hinged on the acceptance of his invitation. "'Because I choose not to,' Helen replied coldly, meeting his glance fully. A dark red flush swelled Brent's face and neck. His gray eyes gleamed balefully with wolfish glare. His teeth were clenched. He breathed hard and trembled with anger. Then, by a powerful effort, he conquered himself. The villainous expression left his face. The storm of rage subsided. Great incentive there must have been for him thus to repress his emotions so quickly. He looked long at her with sinister intent regard. Then, with the laugh of a desperado, a laugh which might have indicated contempt for the failure of his suit, and which was fraught with a word of meaning, of menace, he left her without so much as a salute. Helen pondered over this sudden change, and felt relieved, because she need make no further pretense of friendship. He had shown himself to be what she had instinctively believed. She hurried on toward Betty's, hoping to find Colonel Zane at home, and with Jonathan for Brant's hint of leaving Fort Henry. And his evident chagrin at such a slip of speech had made her suspicious. She was informed by Mrs. Zane that the Colonel had gone to a log-raising. Jonathan had not been in for several days and Betty went away with Will. "'Where'd they go?' asked Helen. "'I'm not sure. I think down to the spring.' Helen followed the familiar path through the grove of oaks into the glade. It was quite deserted. Sitting on the stone against which Jonathan had leaned the day she kissed him, she gave way to tender reflection. Suddenly she was disturbed by the sound of rapid footsteps, and looking up saw the hulking form of Metzer, the innkeeper coming down the path. He carried a bucket, and meant evidently to get water. Helen did not desire to be seen, and, thinking he would stay only a moment, slipped into a thicket of willows behind the stone. She could see plainly through the foliage. Metzer came into the glade, peered around in the manner of a man expecting to see someone, and then, filling his bucket at the spring, sat down on the stone. Not a minute elapsed before soft, rapid footsteps sounded in the distance. The bushes parted, disclosing the white-set face and gray eyes of Roger Brandt. With a light spring he cleared the brook and approached Metzer. Before speaking he glanced around the glade with the fugitive, distressful glance of a man who suspects even the trees. Then, satisfied by the scrutiny, he opened his hunting-frock, taking forth a long object, which he thrust towards Metzer. It was an Indian arrow. Metzer's dull gaze traveled from this to the ominous face of Brant. "'See there, you. Look at this arrow, shot by the best Indian on the border into the window of my room. I hadn't been there a minute when it came from the island. God, but it was a great shot!' "'Hell!' gasped Metzer, his dull face quickening with some awful thought. "'I guess it is hell,' replied Brant his face growing whiter and wilder. "'Our game's up?' questioned Metzer, with haggard cheek. "'Up, man! 
We haven't a day, maybe less, to shake Fort Henry. What does it mean? asked Metzer. He was the calmer of the two. It's a signal. The Shawnees who were in hiding with the horses over by Blueberry Swamp have been flushed by those bordermen. Some of them have escaped, at least one, for no one but Ashbow could shoot that arrow across the river. Suppose he hadn't come, whispered Metzer hoarsely. Brandt answered him with a dark, shuddering gaze. A twig snapped in the thicket, like foxes at the clip of a trap. These men whirled with fearsome glances. Uh, came a low, guttural voice from the bushes, and an Indian of magnificent proportions and somber, swarthy features entered the glade. End of chapter 10